I hope everyone has uh, Matthew Thomas Prince in their life. I really hope each one of you listening has someone like I have and a friend that I've journeyed with for uh, pretty much my entire life. Matthew Thomas Prince, my friend Matt, the one I talk about all the time to you, the one who shows up all the time in my life. And why everyone needs a Matthew Thomas Prince is because when you're around Matt, he has this amazing ability to be one of the most fun people you can be around. You can laugh, you can enjoy, but he's also very dissatisfied with keeping it light. He's dissatisfied with only the laughter and the joy, and he pushes and he's interested in intimacy and depth. So when we're up in Oakland with their family enjoying one another, or we're on vacation with them enjoying one another, and we need to run to the store, and Matt says, why don't you come with me to the store? I know it's not about going to the store. I know that there's a question that Matt is curious about, or a correction that he feels led to share with me. He is the most intentional friend I have because he is dissatisfied with casual. He only enjoys the casual because it's in the intentional we grow in depth of relationship and depth of intimacy. And each one of us are wired differently where questions like that and con confrontations like that can be very disorienting for many of us. And I would contend it's because we don't really know how to do friendship well in this world. That the, the Matthew Thomas Prince is rare because we have a hard time having that level of trust and intimacy and that level of intentionality. Last week, Pastor Chuck talked about uh, the context in the book of Colossians and the philosophy of the time being that of Gnosticism. And uh, in 2005, there was a, a, a piece of work done by sociologist Christian Smith and Melissa Denton called Soul Searching. And in that study, they were trying to identify the spirituality. Uh, what is the, the, the current day Gnosticism of American teenagers of 2005? And, and they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. And here we are 15 years later, and I would argue this is not limited to teenagers. This is, limit, this is a reality of the world we live in and even shows itself up in the church. Moralistic therapeutic deism lacks the intentionality of understanding the scriptures, lacks the intentionality of understanding how Jesus directs his followers to live, and has traded in an intentional following of Jesus for a very generic vibe of what religion should be. How is moralistic therapeutic deism identified? A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Check. A lot of people would believe that, whether they identify as a Christian or not. Yeah, there's a God. But it's a God, number two, who wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. 
Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. Now here's what's happening in many minds and hearts right now. We judge that, but if we really reflect on that, I think we might see how this kind of philosophy has found its way to live right alongside someone who identifies as a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Uh, Jeff Matisich's own words of moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, keep me calm and happy and in emergencies I can reach out to you to help me, to help me. And when I have feelings of that things aren't good or this is uncomfortable, that's not good. Because if the goal of life is to be at peace and to be happy, then anything that challenges that can feel outside. And so we need to blame and we find somewhere to blame. I think this is the, in many ways, uh, the challenge that's before us as followers of Jesus. Philosophies like this, understandings like this, that somehow take the intentionality of the word of God, the intentionality of the words of Jesus, and trade them in for generics so that when specifics are confronted in our life, it can feel like, I don't know a Jesus that does that or speaks about that or talks about this or is calling me to do that and fill in the blank. Anything from the way I choose to use my money to the way I use my time to the positions and things that I believe. Today we're going to open up the scriptures and our trait is the trait of intentionality and we're going to look at it very, uh, a little bit differently than we have in the past weeks with our trait of love and selflessness and action um, and renewal and, and being a new people. I want us to read just a section in the Gospel of Matthew and to look very closely, to look intentionally as to what's happening here. What's the scene? What is Jesus doing? What's the reaction to Jesus? Because when we look intentionally at Jesus and we say we want to follow Jesus, that that intentionality of Christ must resonate in our minds, in our hearts. If you have your scriptures with you, or if not, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We will be in Matthew 8. I know on Friday's video I told you to read the whole thing. We are going to be in verse 28. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? When he, Jesus, is the he, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This text starts fast and furious with Jesus and two demon-possessed men. And we are going to get there in a moment, but I just need you to go back with me just 10 verses Because what happens 10 verses previous feeds into this moment to open it up to us to see the intentionality. Now, I'm not going to read those 10 verses, but you can follow in your scripture the way those are subtitled. We're not going to get far off from those. But in verses 18 to 22, we have an episode where the, the, the central question in these verses is, what is the cost to following Jesus? People coming to Jesus specifically and says, if I'm going to follow you, what does this begin to look like? And it's in this section of scripture, we get Jesus kind of being awkward with language. I mean, the question is, what's it going to cost me to follow you? And he answers, well, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What does Jesus mean? What is his answer saying? What he's saying is, if you want to follow me, Guess what? Foxes have a home. Birds have home. I have no home. Are you willing to give it all up? Are you ready to give up your safety, your security, and even your home to follow me? I mean, that's the answer. Jesus, I want to follow you. What's it going to cost me? And the first answer is everything. Your home, your safety, your security. Next question, another disciple, Lord, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus' response is, follow me and let the dead bury their own. This is not the cute, cuddly Jesus that we think about. What is Jesus saying here? So not only to follow me, you need to give up your safety and your security, you actually have to give up your family as well. I want all of you. In in a short amount of verses, Jesus has just really begun his ministry I mean, he's had the Sermon on the Mount. There's been some miraculous healings that have happened. And there is a following starting to emerge where people are wanting to be near this teacher. And as they're starting to wrap their mind around, I want to be with you, Rabbi. I want to follow you. What does it look like? And he comes out pretty quick here saying, it's just going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. Other parts of Jesus' teaching, he says, unless you deny your parents... You can't follow me. I mean, and there are many people who would argue that this is Jesus uh, using hyperbole or exaggeration just so he can move these people a little bit towards risk. I don't buy that. I I don't buy that. I I don't think what follows and what we will see in both what immediately follows with Jesus calming the storm and what we've just read about the demon-possessed man men have anything to do with just, I think Jesus is speaking in an exaggeration just so the people of Jesus can be a little less comfortable with their security and maybe a little less reoriented in their priorities with with family. I, I think it's much more drastic than that. I mean, they did kill Jesus because he was a revolutionary. So immediately what follows from this, this conversation, you want to follow Jesus, what's the cost? Everything. And the immediate next story is a, a situation of incredible danger. Jesus in a boat with his disciples in a storm hits. Now, we know this story from Sunday school. We know this story. And oftentimes, right, it's depicted as uh, the, 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 the water is rocky and Jesus is resting and the disciples are freaking out and they wake up Jesus and he just kind of calms the storm. And that's totally true what happened. But some insights this week to me 
is can we recognize that the disciples, the people who were with Jesus on the boat, this was not their first boat ride. These were seasoned seamen. These were experienced fishermen. Surely they had been in storms before. Surely this wasn't the first time that they'd been on a boat and the storm came. And so let's be clear with what kind of storm we're talking about. It was significant enough for the people with experience to go to the man who they never had seen do anything with boats or ships before. All they had seen is him just healing people. And in this place, because the storm is probably more like a perfect storm, chaos winds. Think of what it would be like if, if you were on a boat ride, you chartered a boat, and you're with the captain of the boat and the crew of the boat. We've put our trust in them because this is what they do for a living, and it gets so bad that they wake up the guest to say, would you fix this? It's, it's a dangerous scene in which experienced people did not know what to do, and so they turned to Jesus. So right after Jesus has said, it's going to cost you your own safety and security and your family to follow me, the disciples find themselves in a situation where their safety and security was on the line, and they turned to Jesus, and yes, Jesus calms the storm, and because they're still trying to figure out who he is, that section of scripture ends with a question. One, it says the men were amazed at what Jesus did by calming the water. And then they asked, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So our context, and we're gonna get there right now. What's it cost to follow you, Jesus? Everything. And this immediate situation of trust that we've hit a circumstance and a situation that I've never seen before. We don't know what to do. We turn to Jesus and he shows up and does a miracle. And the response of the disciples was, who is this? And now we jump into the text that we have today. And if you're watching and you're paying attention closely, the disciples are asking, who is Jesus? And the demons know exactly who he is. The question is posed by the disciples at the end of the storm, who is this man? And demon, the demons are going to identify this man in the next section. I, I, there's, when we come to the text we've read, Jesus, right, he, he gets off this boat, the storm has been calmed, and he's walking through, and these two demon-possessed men encounter him, and there's a conversation with the demons. We see some pigs. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs go into the water. They die. The town comes out, has a conversation with Jesus, and, and what does it mean? This is where we need to be intentional. Stick with me. I want us to notice. Before I give you some application, I want you to look closely at three details to notice. Some details about the demons, a detail or two about Jesus and some details about the community because they are completely relevant to you and me today. First, would you notice what the demons knew? The demons knew some things that were true. And what I find so interesting is the demons are able to say things that are true that human beings struggle to identify to be true in our whole life. What do you want with us, son of God? First thing the demons knew, they knew that Jesus was the son of God. The demons knew that Jesus was the son of God. The men and disciples on the boat watched Jesus do a miracle and said, what kind of man is this? And the demons knew immediately that they were in the presence of the son of God. 
the demons, the, the, the evil in this world, the enemy, the forces of evil in this world know who Jesus is. The battle between evil and good is not evil not recognizing good and God, it's that they recognize Jesus. The demons knew that Jesus was the son of God. What do you want with us, son of God, they said. The other thing, another thing that the demons knew, they knew that judgment is coming. It continues. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, even the demons know that judgment is part of this experience of life. I believe this is the demons recognizing that there is a hell that the demons recognize that part of the kingdom of God and, about, and who Jesus is as the son of God is there is going to be a time where all is judged, where evil is accounted for, where true justice is given, ultimate justice is received. And the demons themselves recognize not only that Jesus was the son of God, they knew that judgment is coming. And they were terrified and what they also knew is that Jesus has the authority over everything. Some distance from a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus. They knew they were talking to the Son of God. They knew that Jesus had authority over them. And they said to him, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. The, the demons in these men were begging Jesus because they knew he had power and authority over them, and they're begging him to send them somewhere else. Notice what the demons knew. They know who Jesus is. They know that judgment is coming, and they know that Jesus has authority over everything. So I want you to notice that. What did the demons know? Second, what did Jesus do? Let's notice what Jesus did in verse 32. One red letter in your Bible. It's the word go. He said to them, go. Go. No long sermon. No long uh, liturgy. Go. And so they came out and went to the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. What do we need to understand about Jesus? One, notice that Jesus has power over evil. Notice that Jesus has power over demons. That Jesus is more powerful than the darkness of this world. Jesus simply says the word go. God only says the word let us. There is power over evil in the person of Jesus. And also, Jesus chooses to free these people at the expense of some pigs. And that means a whole lot, and we're going to get there. Jesus is making a pretty declarative statement in freeing these two men, sending these demons into a herd of pigs. He is saying that people matter to me more than the pigs. This is a direct illustration off the earlier question in verse 8. What is it going to cost me to follow you, Jesus? Just everything. My safety, my security. I mean, the pigs are not just random pigs. This is livelihood. 
We'll get to the crowd in a moment. I mean, this was, this was part of the economy. This was part of what made that city work. It's what brought in money to the community. And Jesus, in this moment, chooses the freedom of people at the expense of pigs. People over profits. People over the expense of our own personal comfort. People at the cost of what our normal living is. People more important than the status quo. What the demons knew, what Jesus did, and notice finally the response of the community. Those tending the pigs ran off, those who saw this happen. They ran into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Let's stop there for a moment. Why is this important? They didn't run into town and say, all of our pigs went off and they're dead. They shared the whole story. You know those guys? Everybody knew who these men were. I mean, they were secluded to a part of the town away from everybody else because they were violent. This was the part of the town that I'm pretty sure nobody was proud of. This was the part of town everybody avoided. And these men in particular had to be known by the community. And so when those who watched what happened came into the town, they didn't just say, we lost our pigs. They said, here's the whole story. You know that those men, right? They probably knew them. They probably had street names or something. Those men, uh, I saw it. Jesus said the word go, and, and they came out, and they went into the pigs, and now the pigs are dead. The fullness of what happened, the person being free, this part of town being loosened up, the, the, these people not being what they have been their whole life or forever long they've been in their situation of being possessed by demons. The whole story gets told, and even with the whole story, the response of the community is the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. They knew the whole story. Part of their town is now open. A very evil and dark part of their life and culture is no longer needed to be dark. I, I think about all the conversations they might have had with their children about when you go out and play, you don't go over there. These guys are not safe. And we're, I know we're going to Tony's house later, but we're going to take the long way because we don't want to get near all of that precaution, all of what made up that town has been loosened and freed and they aren't having it as a community. With a miracle in front of their eyes, they basically say, get out. Now that is too much, Jesus. We don't need you to do all this. We're not having this kind of Jesus in our town who's actually gonna mess up uh, our way of living. Uh, we don't want that kind of Jesus who's going to, uh, to value people over profits. I, we don't need that kind of Jesus who's messing up the way we've figured out how to live our lives. Moral therapeutic deism at some level. We want a Jesus who keeps us happy, Jesus who keeps the status quo, and then when something bad happens to us, we want Jesus to show up. But the bad that happens in the other, I don't know. I don't know. I, I might need to be convinced on that one. They would rather live in the text how it was than experience the authority and power of evil in this world being loosened and freed. I think you're seeing some application, church, because it's been convicting me for a couple of weeks here. 
So the demons know that evil is real, that, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus has authority over the darkness of this world. Jesus makes a pretty declarative statement about what his priorities are. And the town isn't having it because it's not that kind of Jesus we want. The very Jesus who just previously said, oh, just all of you is what I want, all of you. So how might we apply this? It's pretty brief. First, Lake Avenue Church, would you acknowledge, we at least need to acknowledge what the demons can acknowledge. Evil is real, and division and isolation has always been the strategy of the enemy. Evil is real. It seems to be somewhat in vogue right now to not recognize the reality of the depth of sin, the depth and reality of a devil, the depth and reality of demons and dark forces that are at battle every day, that somehow our battle is with flesh and blood when the scriptures tell us quite the opposite in the garden. What starts all of this sinful world off? Isolation, division. Divided from God, isolation from one another and God, hiding from God. Isolation and division has always been a tool of the enemy. In Ephesians chapter six, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Church, listen to this because evil is real. Division and isolation are the strategy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is happening in front of our eyes, be it a virus that is taking over this world and causing isolation, or another pandemic that's bubbling up to the surface to show where division is in our world and in our country, it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a, it's, it's a battle against the darkness of this world. Evil is real and isolation is real. That's why this pandemic is so deeply troubling for so many of you who live alone. I get it. Or how unnatural it is for you not to see your grandchildren or see your grandparents or to do the things that you normally do because we've been put in a place of isolation. And we are never meant to live in isolation. We're meant to live in community and friendship and, and real intentionality with one another. And when we experience isolation, we have to understand there is a level of that that is a battle playing out in the heavenly realms and it's bigger than just you. And when we experience division or we hear about the reality of division in, in our time and in this world, know that that is a strategy of the reality of evil in this world. And yes, it manifests itself in very real and tangible ways in our life, but there is another reality happening. And it's the reality of evil being real and division and isolation being the strategy from day one. So we have to recognize evil. We have to recognize in our hearts when we feel, begin to feel isolated that that's a, there's something bigger happening there. And to call on the name of Jesus into those spaces. To recognize division. To recognize that you and I live in a world where I fully believe that, this, uh, that the enemy and the battle that's happening in the heavenlies has come to some very interesting places when you think about how incredibly divisive the world we live in is. 
I, I don't know, honestly, I, social media itself is designed to keep us divisive to one another. And we take the bait all the time. We just add to it. We don't recognize that the division, the, the conflict, that there's, there's more happening there. And it's a strategy of the reality of evil and darkness in this world. We just sang a song earlier saying we want God to break every chain. And the reality is we live in such a uh, divided world, we really don't want every chain being broken, do we? Just their chains. Or the chains they have that I agree with. It's a struggle. Evil is real. Division is always an isolation of strategy. Number two. Church, we need to recognize that following Jesus is not safe and orderly. It's just not. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay their head. The same call is on your and my life. What, but I got this thing. Uh, let that take care of itself. Stay with me. Stay with me. The same call is on our life that Jesus just wants everything. And as someone who has a lot, can we, can we admit a struggle with that? If Jesus told me to sell my house, would I? I think he has told me at some level to, to, to think about that so differently than the pervading way we think about home ownership. If Jesus asked me to value uh, certain things at the expense of my own comfort, my own convictions, my own, can I follow Jesus there? Or do prophets products and stability have a primary place in my heart instead of Jesus who will always put people first who will always lead us to freedom over our own security has division and isolation been trapping you and if that's you if you are identifying in in any of this I just want to say to you Maybe you've never really followed Jesus. Maybe the version of Jesus that you have come to understand is one who really is supposed to keep you safe, is supposed to keep things stable, is supposed to always have the market go up steadily. That any kind of unrest or uncertainty, that, that that's not the Jesus. And I believe this morning that Jesus is reaching out to some of you and say, truly follow me today. Start afresh. Watch Jesus come into the, the reality of how isolated you feel, how divided you feel in your soul, in your family, in this world, and follow Jesus. He is not safe. It's not orderly. But the result is one of freedom. That the situations we find ourselves in, we can be freed from those. And this morning, I believe this. I believe there are some of you that the invitation from Jesus sounds new to you today, or it is new to you today. And I'm asking you on the chat, on, on an email later, in the quietness of your heart, invite Jesus to come into your life. Give him everything. Give him everything you have. Trust him. Watch Jesus set you free. Evil is real. Following Jesus is not safe. And finally, I think the most haunting one from this text for me is notice how very possible it is to both miss and dismiss the work of Jesus. 
to miss the bigger story of what's happening. I mean, the whole town showed up and said, leave. To dismiss the work of Jesus. The whole town showed up and said, not here, not this kind of Jesus, no. And the reality is that when we do not have eyes to see what Jesus is doing, when we uh, make Jesus very small, where he doesn't really mess with our comfort and our safety and our security, that when we experience and we see that maybe just maybe God's doing something, Jesus is doing something bigger, but it doesn't fit within our category, it's very easy to miss and dismiss the work of Jesus, and it is also quite easy to miss and dismiss the work of Jesus' people. And I believe that it's our comfort, our way of living, just like the town. This is how it all works. There's people here, they have their part. I got my job and the pigs and it, everything's fine. Don't mess with this. It's that comfort or our habitual way of already living that take precedent over following the freedom that Jesus is bringing into lives and into this world. And at the end of the day, I can be quite guilty of valuing pork over people. And so can you. So it begs the question, Jeff, you, if it's possible to miss and dismiss the work of Jesus, what are you saying? And let me be very clear of what I'm saying, what I see happening. I find it interesting that for years I have sat with many people and it is very easy to have a conversation like this with a follower of Jesus. Related to alcohol. Uh, Jeff, I don't drink because alcoholism runs in my family. And you know, science would tell us that there's a genetic disposition I have because of my dad or my grandparent um, who was an alcoholic, that that's just not something I do. And so I have somehow come to a place uh, to guard against that because I recognize what runs in my family. That's acceptable, that's okay, we, and we have a lot of therapists in our church, and, and I'm grateful for that kind of recognition that there's actually genetic realities to how we live today. I thought that's acceptable. Even in the scriptures, there's a very clear um, understanding and teaching that there's a thing called generational sin. The sins of the father get past the children. Uh, if you've been a part of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality with Bill Mead, and Jeannie, you know that that's a major part of the curriculum is recognizing the generational sin. So you make a geneogram and you back up and you say, this is what runs in my family. And so these are the kind of things, like all that's very acceptable. So there's one. The other thing that's really interesting to me is how much, um, especially folks that look like me, how much we love just history, especially around kings and Europe and, and the miniseries with the costumes and Dwayne loves Downton Abbey. Like, we love all that history. But I find it interesting when it comes to racism being something that possibly could be passed down from one generation to a generation, that possibly has lived within our world and our culture for a long time, that that's where we kind of go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, alcoholism, okay, but not, that's not, it can't be the same thing. Or, how we can be enamored with one part of history and be so ignorant of other parts of history and almost be anti-history. So what do I think God's doing in this moment? I think the demon of racism is being messed with by the living God. That there's a part of our history as a country, that there's a part of our history as even a church that is coming to a, a, a turning point here. 
that something's being exposed, and it's been a long-standing, and, and it, it feels different to some, and for others it feels so potentially freeing, and for some it feels so incredibly hopeful yet hopeless because we've been here before, and I believe that through the time of pandemic, as the world has slowed down and we've had to sit in some spaces, and while you're connected to your children and grandchildren and to your grandparents in a different kind of way, that we have an opportunity in this moment to actually see what God is doing. And he's messing with something that's had its own part hidden and gone and away, and, and, and it's going to mess with everything. And my question is, are we going to tell Jesus to get out? Don't do that. I mean, we have this thing set. Or are we going to back up and say evil is real? Isolation and division are not from God. And Jesus has the power and authority over this. And that Jesus is going to pick people over prophets. That Jesus is about setting people and systems and all kinds of things free. And that in this moment, God is doing something in front of us. And I don't want to be the kind of person who says, no, that's not my Jesus. Uh, my Jesus doesn't go there. See, we, we might be prone to miss the bigger story of what God is doing. We might be prone to have a very moralistic, therapeutic, deist, deistic philosophy of life rather than a Jesus who says, you want to follow me? All of it. Bring it all to me. Trust me in the storm. Watch me set free things that have been stuck for years. Let me cast out the demons and darkness of this world and it might not be the way you want it done, but don't kick me out of your town. So Lake, I think we're at a pivotal point as a church in how we recognize what God is doing in this world. And I have two, two questions for you. And I find this also interesting on some of the things I read, that somehow prayer is a cop-out. <laughs> I don't buy that at all. I think that's a lie from the pit of hell. Lake Avenue Church, will you pray in this moment that you would be so connected to Jesus? That what turns our stomach or confuses our minds, that we would run into the presence of God and be in relationship with him. And a very convicting kind of question for me is how much time are we listening to other people rather than being in conversation with God? And if that ratio is off, and I know it is off, Would you come back to God? Would you read his scriptures? Would you pray? Would you silence the other voices? I've been thinking a lot about fasting this week. And I'm wondering if God's asking us to have a, a different kind of fast in this moment. A fast that says, you know, today, one day a week, minimum, I'm just gonna turn off the news, turn off social media, I'm going to pray. I'm going to put on worship music. I, I get there's critics right now saying, oh, that's such an easy answer, Jeff. Just pray and listen to worship music. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with worship. I'm going to go with prayer. Doesn't mean we don't have the news on other days. But do we sense what God is doing in this world? Do we sense an invitation from Jesus in this moment? to put the freedom of, of demon-possessed systems and generational sin and that there is something God is loosening up. I think there's other things he's loosening up too. I'll talk about those another time. 
I, I got to tell you, as, as overwhelming as it can be to have a job where I know that every time I open my mouth, some of you are upset about something I've said, and probably a lot of you. I feel more convinced than ever that God is on the move in our time and that something is being loosed. And yeah, it's ugly. There's going to be some pigs that fly off and drown, and there's going to be impact, and there is impact, there has been impact. But man, I, want, I don't want to be telling Jesus to get out. I want to watch him keep working. And I invite you to join me in that work. Father, thank you for this opportunity to see how intentional you are, how powerful you are. And God, I pray for us at Lake Avenue Church, one, that we would recognize that our battle is not against one another. It's not against flesh and blood. But that there's a bigger battle happening. And I pray that we would recognize that reality and call on the name of Jesus and for you just to continue to move and to work in our hearts and our minds and in this world. And God, we recognize that the way you work isn't the way we want you to work all the time. So we recognize, and I pray that we would all contemplate, what are our pigs? What are our things? What are the things that, man, we don't, we don't see you getting there. Will we trust you? Will we trust you at the expense of our comfort? Will we trust you at the expense of our security? Will we trust you at the expense of what we know? Will we trust you so that when you work, we would just say thank you and applaud and follow and not ask you to leave. Amen.